Section 13 of the Green Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. The Green Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. Heart of Ice, Part 2. Mannequin thereupon wrote a suitable reply and then begged the king to satisfy his curiosity about all the strange things he had seen and heard since his landing. This appeared to awaken sad recollections in the king's mind, but he informed the prince that he was called King Bayard, and that a fairy, whose kingdom was next his own, had fallen violently in love with him, and had done all she could to persuade him to marry her but that he could not do so, as he himself was a devoted lover of the Queen of the Spice Islands. Finally, the fairy, furious at the indifference with which her love was treated, had reduced him to the state in which the prince found him, leaving him unchanged in mind, but deprived of the power of speech, and not content with wrecking her vengeance upon the king alone, she had condemned all his subjects to a similar fate, saying, Bark and run upon four feet until the time comes when virtue shall be rewarded by love and fortune. Which, as the poor king remarked, was very much the same thing as if she had said, Remain a spaniel forever and ever. Prince Mannikin was quite of the same opinion. Nevertheless, he said what we should all have said in the same circumstances. Your Majesty must have patience. He was indeed deeply sorry for poor King Bayard, and said all the consoling things he could think of, promising to aid him with all his might if there was anything to be done. In short, they became firm friends, and the King proudly displayed to Mannequin the portrait of the Queen of the Spice Islands and he quite agreed that it was worth while to go through anything for the sake of a creature so lovely. Prince Mannequin, in his turn, told his own history and the great undertaking upon which he had set out, and King Bayard was able to give him some valuable instructions as to which would be the best way for him to proceed, and then they went together to the place where the boat had been left. The sailors were delighted to see the prince again, though they had known that he was safe, and when they had taken on board all the supplies which the king had sent for them, they started once more. The king and prince parted with much regret, and the former insisted that Mannequin should take with him one of his own pages, named Musta, who was charged to attend to him everywhere and serve him faithfully, which he promised to do. The wind being favourable, they were soon out of hearing of the general howl of regret from the whole army, which had been given by order of the king as a great compliment, and it was not long before the land was entirely lost to view. They met with no further adventures worth speaking of, and presently found themselves within two leagues of the harbour for which they were making. The prince, however, thought it would suit him better to land where he was, so as to avoid the town, since he had no money left, 
and was very doubtful as to what he should do next. So the sailors set him and Musta on shore, and then went back sorrowfully to their ship, while the prince and his attendant walked off in what looked to them the most promising direction. They soon reached a lovely green meadow on the border of a wood, which seemed to them so pleasant after their long voyage that they sat down to rest in the shade and amused themselves by watching the gambols and antics of a pretty tiny monkey in the trees close by. The prince presently became so fascinated by it that he sprang up and tried to catch it, but it eluded his grasp and kept just out of arm's reach until it had made him promise to follow wherever it led him and then it sprang upon his shoulder and whispered in his ear we have no money my poor mannikin and we are altogether badly off and at a loss to know what to do next yes indeed answered the prince ruefully and i have nothing to give you no sugar or biscuits or anything that you like my pretty one since you are so thoughtful for me and so patient about your own affairs said the little monkey i will show you the way to the golden rock only you must leave musta to wait for you here prince mannikin agreed willingly and then the little monkey sprang from his shoulder to the nearest tree and began to run through the wood from branch to branch crying follow me this the prince did not find quite so easy but the little monkey waited for him and showed him the easiest places until presently the wood grew thinner and they came out into a little clear grassy space at the foot of a mountain in the midst of which stood a single rock about ten feet high when they were quite close to it the little monkey said this stone looks pretty hard but give it a blow with your spear and let us see what will happen so the prince took his spear and gave the rock a vigorous dig which split off several pieces and showed that though the surface was thinly coated with stone inside it was one solid mass of pure gold thereupon the little monkey said laughing at his astonishment i make you a present of what you have broken off take as much of it as you think proper the prince thanked her gratefully and picked up one of the smallest of the lumps of gold as he did so the little monkey was suddenly transformed into a tall and gracious lady who said to him if you are always as kind and persevering and easily contented as you are now you may hope to accomplish the most difficult tasks go on your way and have no fear that you will be troubled any more for lack of gold for that little piece which you modestly chose shall never grow less use it as much as you will but that you may see the danger you have escaped by your moderation come with me so saying she led him back into the wood by a different path and he saw that it was full of men and women their faces were pale and haggard and they ran hither and thither seeking madly upon the ground or in the air starting at every sound pushing and trampling upon one another in their frantic eagerness to find the way to the golden rock you see how they toil said the fairy but it is all of no avail they will end by dying of despair as hundreds have done before them 
As soon as they had got back to the place where they had left Musta, the fairy disappeared, and the prince and his faithful squire, who had greeted him with every demonstration of joy, took the nearest way to the city. Here they stayed several days, while the prince provided himself with horses and attendants, and made many inquiries about the princess Sabella, and the way to her kingdom, which was still so far away that he could hear but little, and that of the vaguest description. But when he presently reached Mount Caucasus, it was quite a different matter. Here they seemed to talk of nothing but the Princess Sabella, and strangers from all parts of the world were travelling towards her father's court. The prince heard plenty of assurances as to her beauty and her riches, but he also heard of the immense number of his rivals and their power. One brought an army at his back, another had vast treasures, a third was as handsome and accomplished as it was possible to be, while, as to poor Mannikin, he had nothing but his determination to succeed, his faithful spaniel, and his ridiculous name, which last was hardly likely to help him. But as he could not alter it, he wisely determined not to think of it any more. After journeying for two whole months, they came at last to Trelinton, the capital of the Princess Sabella's kingdom, and here he heard dismal stories about the ice mountain, and how none of those who had attempted to climb it had ever come back. He heard also the story of King Fada Kinbras, Sabella's father. It appeared that he, being a rich and powerful monarch, had married a lovely princess named Birbantine, and they were as happy as the day was long, so happy that as they were out sledging one day, they were foolish enough to defy fate to spoil their happiness. We shall see about that, grumbled an old hag who sat by the wayside, blowing her fingers to keep them warm. The king thereupon was very angry and wanted to punish the woman, but the queen prevented him, saying, Alas, sire, do not let us make bad worse. No doubt this is a fairy. You are right there, said the old woman, and immediately she stood up, and as they gazed at her in horror, she grew gigantic and terrible. Her staff turned to a fiery dragon with outstretched wings, her ragged cloak to a golden mantle, and her wooden shoes to two bundles of rockets. You are right there, and you will see what will come of your fine goings-on, and remember the fairy Gorgonzola. So saying, she mounted the dragon and flew off, the rocket shooting in all directions and leaving long trails of sparks. In vain did Farda Kinbris and Birbantine beg her to return and endeavor by their humble apologies to pacify her. She never so much as looked at them, and was very soon out of sight, leaving them a prey to all kinds of dismal forebodings. Very soon after this the queen had a little daughter, who was the most beautiful creature ever seen. All the fairies of the north were invited to her christening, and warned against the malicious Gorgonzola. She also was invited, but she neither came to the banquet nor received her present. But as soon as all the others were seated at table, 
After bestowing their gifts upon the little princess, she stole into the palace, disguised as a black cat, and hid herself under the cradle until the nurses and the cradle rockers had all turned their backs. And then she sprang out, and in an instant had stolen the little princess's heart and made her escape, only being chased by a few dogs and scullions on her way across the courtyard. Once outside, she mounted her chariot and flew straight away to the North Pole, where she shut up her stolen treasure on the summit of the ice mountain and surrounded it with so many difficulties that she felt quite easy about its remaining there as long as the princess lived. And then she went home, chuckling at her success. As to the other fairies, they went home after the banquet without discovering that anything was amiss, and so the king and queen were quite happy. Sabella grew prettier day by day. She learnt everything a princess ought to know without the slightest trouble, and yet something always seemed lacking to make her perfectly charming. She had an exquisite voice, but whether her songs were grave or gay, it did not matter. She did not seem to know what they meant, and every one who heard her said, She certainly sings perfectly, but there is no tenderness, no heart in her voice. Poor Sibella, how could there be when her heart was far away on the ice mountains? And it was just the same with all the other things that she did. As time went on, in spite of the admiration of the whole court and the blind fondness of the king and queen, it became more and more evident that something was fatally wrong, for those who love no one cannot long be loved and at last the king called a general assembly and invited the fairies to attend, that they might, if possible, find out what was the matter. After explaining their grief as well as he could, he ended by begging them to see the princess for themselves. It is certain, said he, that something is wrong. What it is, I don't know how to tell you but in some way your work is imperfect. They all assured him that so far as they knew, everything had been done for the princess, and they had forgotten nothing that they could bestow on so good a neighbor as the king had been to them. After this they went to see Sabella, but they had no sooner entered her presence than they cried out with one accord, Oh, horror! She has no heart! On hearing this frightful announcement, the king and queen gave a cry of despair and entreated the fairies to find some remedy for such an unheard-of misfortune. Thereupon the eldest fairy consulted her book of magic, which she always carried about with her, hung to her girdle by a thick silver chain, and there she found out at once that it was Gorgonzola who had stolen the princess's heart and also discovered what the wicked old fairy had done with it. "'What shall we do? What shall we do?' cried the king and queen in one breath. "'You must certainly suffer much annoyance from seeing and loving Sabella, who is nothing but a beautiful image,' replied the fairy, "'and this must go on for a long time. But I think I see that, in the end, 
she will once more regain her heart. My advice is that you shall at once cause her portrait to be sent all over the world, and promise her hand and all her possessions to the prince who is successful in reaching her heart. Her beauty alone is sufficient to engage all the princes of the world in the quest. This was accordingly done, and Prince Mannikin heard that already five hundred princes had perished in the snow and ice, not to mention their squires and pages, and that more continued to arrive daily, eager to try their fortune. After some consideration he determined to present himself at court, but his arrival made no stir, as his retinue was as inconsiderable as his stature and the splendor of his rivals was great enough to throw even Father Kinbras himself into the shade. However, he paid his respects to the king very gracefully, and asked permission to kiss the hand of the princess in the usual manner. But when he said he was called Mannikin, the king could hardly repress a smile, and the princes who stood by openly shouted with laughter. Turning to the king, Prince Mannikin said with great dignity, Pray laugh if it pleases your majesty. I am glad that it is in my power to afford you any amusement. But I am not a plaything for these gentlemen, and I must beg them to dismiss any ideas of that kind from their minds at once. And with that he turned upon the one who had laughed the loudest, and proudly challenged him to a single combat. This prince, who was called Fadasi, accepted the challenge very scornfully, mocking at Mannikin, whom he felt sure had no chance against himself. But the meeting was arranged for the next day. When Prince Mannikin quitted the king's presence, he was conducted to the audience hall of the Princess Sabella. The sight of so much beauty and magnificence almost took his breath away for an instant. But recovering himself with an effort, he said, Lovely princess, irresistibly drawn by the beauty of your portrait, I come from the other end of the world to offer my services to you. My devotion knows no bounds, but my absurd name has already involved me in a quarrel with one of your courtiers. Tomorrow I am to fight this ugly, overgrown prince and I beg you to honor the combat with your presence, and prove to the world that there is nothing in a name, and that you deign to accept Mannikin as your knight. When it came to this, the princess could not help being amused, for though she had no heart, she was not without humor. However, she answered graciously that she accepted with pleasure, which encouraged the prince to entreat further that she would not show any favor to his adversary. Alas, said she, I favor none of these foolish people who weary me with their sentiment and their folly. I do very well as I am, and yet from one year's end to another they talk of nothing but delivering me from some imaginary affliction. Not a word do I understand of all their pratings about love, and who knows what dull things besides which I declare to you I cannot even remember. 
Mannequin was quick enough to gather from this speech that to amuse and interest the princess would be a far surer way of gaining her favor than to add himself to the list of those who continually teased her about that mysterious thing called love, which she was so incapable of comprehending. So he began to talk of his rivals, and found in each of them something to make merry over, in which diversion the princess joined him heartily, and so well did he succeed in his attempt to amuse her, that before very long she declared that of all the people at court he was the one to whom she preferred to talk. End of Heart of Ice, Part 2 Recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts August 2010